Recording in progress. So uh, this week I decided to focus on, again, there's not many Rambans and Parshas Vayelach to focus on. And given that we have Yom Kippur coming up next week, so I decided to focus on a Ramban in relation to Yom Kippur, specifically in relation to the Sawyer La Zazel, the Rambam's position on the the goat that is meant for Azazel, the scapegoat. Chazal said, the Gemara says, that the reason that there is a Sawyer La Azazel is to give a kapara for Misa of Uza and Azoel, for the sin committed by Uza and Azoel. Who were Uza and Azoel? So Rashi explains that they were Malachi Chavala. They were some sort of uh, avenging angels that came down to the world. They came down to earth during the days of Tuval Kayan. And <coughs> they came down during the era when the Torah says right before the Mabal of Vayiru Bneo Elohim Espinaisa Adam Kitavisena. And they took Mikasha Bacharu, they took whoever they wanted. And what Rashi is effectively saying is that these angels uh, somehow took on material form, physical form. They married these women, and they had these giants of children. And therefore, the Sorla Azazel is being mechaper on the Maisa of Uzan Azoel. Now you might ask, well, what does it have to do with anything? Why would the Sawyer for Azazel come to be mechaper on the Maisa of Uzan Azoel? doesn't seem to have any relation to us. Why would we be looking, seeking to achieve a kapara for a maise of Uzan Azoel that took place in the anti-Diluvian era, pre-the flood? So Rashi says, Kloimar ala arayas mechaber. In other words, when the Gemara says that the Tana Devei Rishmol understands that what is the Sarla Azazel is to mechaper al Maisa Uzava Azazel. The Gemara is not meant to be understood literally. You might have understood the Gemara literally that we're doing some sort of rectification, some sort of kapara ceremony that is going to heal the world, uh, some sort of tikkun olam for sins that were committed ages and ages past. Says Rashi, no, no, no. That that's misunderstanding. The Tana of the Shmuel. Don't take it literally. Tana of the Shmuel is just saying, it's bimechapan ma'isa uzan azol. Uzan azol is a code word. It's a code word for Arias, because we have the whole story that is brought down. That uzan azol, where these malachi chaval that came down, and had their way with woman, human woman, and had all these children that were these giants. So it becomes a code word for licentiousness, it becomes a code word for inappropriate behavior. And therefore, when we're saying that we're being mechaber, an amaisa of Uzan Azoel, what we're really meaning 
is that the Sarala Azazel is being Mechaper on Arias. So we have at least two different understandings. One is the simple reading of the Tanah Dever and we have Rashi's understanding with, which is that it's simply a code word for Arias. Obviously Rashi's understanding seems to be much closer to what Pshat would be, because why would it be necessary to have a, a Sawyer on Yom Kippur, which is being Mechaper for Arsons, why would he have to seek atonement for sins of angels from ages past? This idea, by the way, that there were these um, super humans that were descended from giants, uh, from angels, I'm sorry, that fell to earth, um, is something that uh, is found many times in Chazal. Um, we talk about Moshe Rabbeinu when he went to go fight Sichon and Oig. So the Torah says he was very afraid of, of Oig, but he wasn't afraid of Sichon. By Sichon, he starts up with Sichon. So the Gemara wants to know why was he afraid of Oig but not afraid of Sichon. So the Gemara says that Sichon and Oig were the sons of Achia Bar Shemchazi, and this was another name for for one of the fallen angels. Instead of calling him Uzen Azoel, we are we are referring to him as Bar uh, Shemchazi, who, uh, according to this Rashi over here in, in Nida, says that this um, Shemchazi and Azoel were the two angels that came down. So either this Shemchazi is another name for Uza, or it's a different version. But in any event, Aig and Sichon were brothers, um, um, they were brothers and they were children of this guy, Shemchazi, um, who came down. And as we know, there's another Chazal that says that Oig survives the flood. He holds on to the Teva. And the reason that Moshe Rabbeinu was scared from Oig and not scared from Sichain was because of the Schus, that when the Pasuk says in Pashas Lech Lecha, that the survivor came to tell Avram about the news that his nephew Lot was captured, that quote-unquote survivor, the Pesach says, the survivor came to rescue, uh, I'm sorry, the survivor came to inform Avram that his nephew had been taken captive. So the definition of survivor, the definition of survivor would have been thought as a matter of shot to be a survivor of the war of the four kings against the five kings. But we understand from the perspective of Chazal that it refers to the survivor of the Mabu. He was a survivor from the Mabal, and and therefore we're referring to Aig, who was a survivor from the Mabal. He's the one who informed Avram of what had happened, and Moshe Rabbeinu was scared of that schus that he had had to inform Avram of the capture of his nephew. Let's continue on. So, the uh, just to point out that the simple understanding, even of Rashi. In other words, one of the fantastic ways to understand Rashi is to understand Rashi as his commentary is in Chumash, and then to see Rashi's commentary in, in, that he has in Gemara. Many times the, posi- the positions that he brings down to Chumash are not, are not necessarily um, what he would say in the Gemara. But you have to remember that Rashi is always coming as a mefarish on what's on the page in front of him. That's why you find many times that Rashi contradicts himself, and the answer you know, doesn't have to be as some you know, Achrayim would have it, which is that Rashi is really not contradicting at all. 
And this is how you're going to explain it and try to find some very, very finely tuned distinction. But rather, you can simply say Rashi is interpreting the information that's in front of him. Doesn't mean that he necessarily held that this was the best shot. So, for example, even though Rashi and Nida and Rashi and Yuma explains the whole Mayas of Uzzah and Azoel, if you look in Chumash, we're going to be having in a few weeks when we read Bereshis, you see there that the Pasuk says that over there Rashi says, what does B'nei Ha'elohim mean? It means B'nei Asarim V'ashayftim. B'nei Elohim just means the important ones, as we have, like Elohim Le'sakalav, Nasi Va'amcha Le'sar. Many times we have um, the word Elohim being used not as a god, but rather as an important person. For example, by Meishu Rabbeinu in relation to his rela- his relationship with, with Aaron, the Pazik says that Aaron right? Aaron, your brother, is going to be your Navi, and you're going to be to him for a god. Literally a god? No. It means you're going to be to him for like the, the, the one who's going to be giving him the information, and he's going to be the one who says it out in public because he's you know, more uh, um, able to speak better than you. But it doesn't mean literally a god. So, so Rashi says that the better pshat is it simply means important people. Although Rashi does bring down a second pshat, that means that they are going in God's service. So then what it comes out is that according to Rashi's preferred pshat, According to Rashi's preferred pshat, the Bnei Elohim are not what? Are not actually angels. They are simply, um, they are simply important people. So if they are simply important people, then the whole mice of Uz and Azul is not relevant. And that's not what, what the Gemara says, that why are we bringing the Sarlah Azul is nothing to do with Uz and Azul. So then we're not connecting it back at all to the Bnei Elohim. If we're not connecting it a little back to the Penela him, then we would be back for Rashi as a question of, well, why would we bring the Saralah Zazo? So that's something to sort of bear in mind. In general, when you read Rashi in comparison to Rashi in the Gemara, Rashi doesn't necessarily always have to be saying that his Shad and Chumash doesn't have to fit with the fact that he explains many Gemaras that he doesn't bring down, many Chazals that he doesn't bring down in his commentary in Chumash. The Radak, by the way, is very clear that he does not like the approach that the Bnei Elohim are really gods, uh, you know, angels that came down. He says, Udrash It's very far, very far-fetched. Before we move on further and discuss the Ramban, I think it's important to point out the Malbim. The Malbim here um, has something very interesting. The Malbim oftentimes brings down very interesting things that were sort of all current in his time. In other words, the things that were in the news in his day and age. Um, it's not always uh, the case that science or history or whatever would agree today, but, but it's very edifying to see what he, what he was aware of. So, for example, Parshish Nayach, you'll find very long albums discussing arch- uh, ge- geology, you know, fossil evidence, um, which in those days was becoming a, a field of study. And, you know, his big question from, you know, from geology was when you look at the geological records, according to the geologists, it seems that there are very, very, very ancient bones. 
Uh, how did that happen? How does that comport with the age of the universe, according to the Jewish tradition? So this is the kinds of things that, that he was dealing with. And we're talking here in the mid-1800s. So he's one of the earliest rabbis who's dealing with, you know, the, science, the, the sort of industrial revolution era science and putting it into his commentary. So him in Parshas Bereshis, when he's discussing the B'nai Lehim, the Mabim here also has a whole long exorcis about demigods. And he says demigods, you know, gods that are effectively, um, uh, as, as uh, Wikipedia translates, what is a demigod? Uh, it's a list of offspring of a deity with a mortal, it's in mythology and modern fiction. Sometimes they're referred to as demigods, but it can also refer to a minor deity. Um, so the basic idea of a demigod, somebody's not actually a god, but has some sort of superpower. In this case, what the Malvin says is that he looked at all the myth books of all the different cultures. He talks specifically about Egypt, about Greece, about the Babylonians, etc. They all talk about Menelahim, literally angels, coming down to earth and having their way on earth with humankind with and and having children with various women and those children be having like superpowers because they weren't fully human they also had sort of you know angelic powers and he says that myth is is everywhere it's pervasive and and we know that today of course he's 100% right that myth can be found in every culture it explains for many of them the creation of the world uh, of how we got to, to where we are today um, <coughs> and so that would not be um, that would not be in any way far-fetched the Malam says of course that that's not true so why would the Torah be talking about B'nai Elohim right? why would the Torah be talking about B'nai Elohim if, the, if they're not actually real in other words these are all myths that apply in many different civilizations many different nationalities have such myths why would the Torah be reflecting that myth? So the Malbim says um, that it doesn't actually mean B'nai Elohim as the Pshat that they were thought by the Torah to be the sons of angels and, and women. No. He says that's what, the, that's what these people um, said about themselves. In other words... There were various people who, because they had some claim to fame, they were somewhat famous or, or very successful, told women that they were descended from angels. And that um, was, in a sense, used to help uh, in, enhance or encourage relationships. There, that was their means or their way of relationship building. And the Torah is, is reflecting this, um, this sort of... Uh, fact that people went around and said all sorts of fantastical stories about themselves, but it wasn't literally true. They weren't literally Benelahim, but it is their advertising. It is their way of sort of talking highly about themselves. That is true, and that is what happened in this case, and that's why uh, these women were open and were willing to ascend to relationships with these people, because they thought that they were on such a godly level. They were, they were you know, literally from some some other realm, even though in reality we know that that's not true, which leads to whole other sorts of questions 
um, in, in modern day criminal law, if that would really be consent, but that's not for right now. One point to note is that the Torah does sometimes reflect um, uh, myths that people uh, felt or laws that people felt in those days. And in this sense, the Malbim, I think, is onto something that is very, very relevant in terms of how one can approach Tanakh. Um, for me, the person that opened my eyes to this was the chief rabbi Hertz's Blue Chumash, which I used to read between Mincha and Marev on, on Shabbos afternoons, where he has these essays in the back. And in the essays in the back, he talks about various different things that were current issues in his day. And one of the things he always he pointed out that I always remember and and people have, have you know further developed this is in relation to the the beginning of Parsha Mishpatim, where we talk about all the rules about how you treat um, somebody that hurts somebody else, when a cow gores, etc. And much of this you can see in Hammurabi's code. But as, as uh, you know, Rabbi Hertz pointed out, they're very, very different. The Torah is using the same idioms, like eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. The idioms are the same, but the laws are very different. By, by the case of Torah law, for example, the Torah says, Whether you gore a boy or a girl is the same, the same rules. It doesn't make a difference if they're free, uh, you know, people, if they're noble people, you treat everybody the same. And um, in the Sumerian law under Hammurabi, it was very, very different. Somebody, um, you know, who, who hurt somebody on a higher social stature, whether animal hurt somebody on a higher sta- social stature, would get very, punished very, very differently. And so this is a, something that you would never know, but it could be the Torah is using these idioms because people were familiar with it, but also in its own way, ensuring um, that it be understood very, very differently. We know this for sure in in, in Parshish Noach, in relation to the Mabal, the whole creation, the whole is totally different than every other creation story or, or the, what they call flood myths. It's totally, totally different. There's no battles between gods. And there are many, many, many scholars who followed the sort of path that, that, that Rabbi Hertz went down on. But again, um, this is a bit of a tangent, but it's again it's all related to the idea of what the Mabum was saying, namely that there is a pretty clear evidence that many cultures surrounding the Jewish people believed in these sort of demigods, believed in the idea that there were fallen angels that had relationships with human women, and they had children who were like super, you know, supermen. And the Torah is responding to that myth, because people used it, that myth to their advantage, even though it wasn't true. But that doesn't prevent the Torah from talking like that, because that was the case of what was going on at that time. So that brings us, again... To, to the Ramban. This is sort of an opening to understand a little bit about the different approaches to Azazel and B'nai Elohim. So we get to the to the Ramban. The Ramban is, of course, in Parshat Zacharim <coughs> And 
helpful to understand the Ramban to first discuss the Ibn Ezra. Because while it is true that there are a few times in Chumash where the Ramban agrees with the Ibn Ezra, you know, more than a few times, but it's more often than not that the Ramban is disagreeing with the Ibn Ezra. So in this case, the Ibn Ezra starts out by saying that he gives a few different explanations, and one of the explanations is from Rashmul Bar Khafni. And Rashmul Bar Khafni says that both the Seir La Hashem and the Seir La Zazel are both for Akadosh Baruchu. However, Rabbi Shmuel Bar Khafni is wrong, says the Ibn Ezra. The Ibn Ezra doesn't agree. The Ibn Ezra says that if both goats were for Akadosh Baruchu, then why is one being treated totally differently than the other? Therefore, says the Ibn Ezra, one goat is for Hashem, and the other goat is for Samoel. Samoel is otherwise known as Samach Mem. Um, that's how he stood for, his acronym Samach Mem for Samoel. Others would refer to him as Satan, uh, the Malach Hamavas, many different possible permutations of what, of what, it, uh, of what the name is. But says the says the Ibn Ezra that Samuel is why we're taking this goat and pushing him we're pushing him down some some very sharp um, ravine uh, to its eventual death. That is, says the Ibn Ezra, we're giving a bribe to Samuel to keep Samuel happy. We're keeping Samal happy by sending this goat to him. And the Ibn Ezra says very famously that um, he's not going to tell you more. It's a very deep secret. But when you get to 33, you'll understand. It sounds like when you get to the age of 33, maybe you'll understand. Others say that that's not what it means. What it means is, what it means when, when you get to 33 means when you get to the word. Um, Gal Aid. The Dasikanum of the Balayat Tosfos say what the Ibn Ezra is referring to as Gal Aid. Gal Aid is a mountain of rocks, right? If you recall, that comes from Parshas Vayetze, uh, where Yaakov and Lavan make a treaty, and Yaakov calls it Gal Aid, and Lavan called it Igarso Aduso, right? What does Gal Aid mean? Gal is a pile of rocks. Aid is a witness, and and. Um, Lavan called the Igar so Adusa. So Adusa again, testimony in Igars is is this um, this mound. So say the Dasikan of the Balayatesis, one of the few times that they quote the Ibn Ezra, the Dasikanim uh, the Ibn Ezra himself had a tortured I shouldn't say tortured, maybe too strong a term, but the Ibn Ezra himself had an interesting relationship with two of the most famous of the Balayatesis. Right, one is the Rajbam and the other one is the Rabbeinu Tam. In relation to the the Rashbam, you may recall a couple of years ago, we did, when we were doing Rashbam, we opened up with the Rashbam's commentary in Chumash and Parshish Bereshis, I believe we did that that first week. The Rashbam there says, in a in a, uh, a Rashbam that's been taken out of the official Rashbam books, you can only find it in sort of a more modern day approaches, but you won't find it in your normal art scroll, um, because it was deemed too too dangerous to, to, to be written. But the Rashbam says that initially, uh, the way it worked in the Jewish calendar was that the day followed the 
the sunrise. It wasn't the day when the night fell, but it was the day when the sun rose. That became a new day. And the way we have it today of the the day starting the night before, that, that was a later sort of post-Sinai invention. So therefore, what that means is when the Torah says, Vayerev, Vayivayker, Yoyimechad, it means that when it became the morning, it was night, then it was the morning, and that was one day. In other words, it only becomes the new day um, at the end of the the night. The Rajbam doesn't like it. I'm sorry, the Ibn Esh doesn't like this Rajbam. Why not? Because when it comes to Shabbos, when the Pasuk says, Vayer, Vayverker, Yemashishi, Vayichulashmanavart, etc., um, that would mean that Shabbos started in the annals of creation. It means that it started in the daytime rather than the night before. So the Ibn Ezra doesn't like it. And he wrote a book called the Garis HaShabbos. Supposedly he, he authored the book um, while he was in London um, and railed against this understanding and this explanation of the Rashbam, but he never quotes the Rashbam. If you look in his commentary on Chumash, there's a number of times where I think it can be proven that the Ibn Ezra is going after the Rashbam, but never by name, never quotes him by name. Um, one of the famous times is the Rashbam's controversial understanding of Tefillin as being effectively a parable, not literally Tefillin, as the, as the basic shot. And in these times, the Ibn Ezra is going after the Rashbam, he doesn't actually ever quote him, but, but clearly he was aware of him, the same way the Ibn Ezra is aware of Rashi, um, when he quotes Rashi many times, Rabbi Shlomo, he calls it, you know, he quotes him five or six times in his commentary on Chumash. Um, if we look at the Ibn Ezra's relationship with the Rebbeinu Tam, um, it's different. The, the, he certainly seems to have respected very much the Rashbam's younger brother, except that he really didn't like his approach to poetry. And so whenever we come to Rosh Hashanah Kippur, when we think about Piyutim, we always think about what the Ibn Ezra wrote when he said, who let this fed Frenchman into the hallowed halls of poetry. He didn't like the way he wrote. Maybe his rhyme and meter wasn't to his liking. I'm not 100% clear. I'm not such a uh, big poet myself, but it seems that uh, the Ibn Ezra respected the Rashbam as a, as a, as a, as a Torah scholar, as a, as a force of personality, but did not, <coughs> nevertheless, still like his poetry. With all that being said, <coughs> so the Ibn Ezra writes, that that the the Sar Lazazel is going for Samuel, it's a bribe for Samuel. And and um and you won't know this until you get to the something thirty three. So as we said the Dazikin and the Balatesis who do quote who does do quote the Ibn Ezra, they say what it means is thirty three is the word Gal eight. If you look at the word Gal, Gal is thirty three. So when you get to the word gal, right? Remember, we're talking here about rocks, right? For the azazel, you, t- you take uh, the the goat to a, 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 a ravine, right? And you throw them down. You throw them down the mountain, like the down a mountain. Um, and so it's somewhat a little tortured, but the idea of gal eight is you get to thirty three. So you have the gal, and 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 then you have the the aid afterwards. So the the basic approach of the Dazikanim is that um, 
They said the same way you, um, the Gal 8, which is 33, shows you what the word means. You divide it in half. It means the, 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 the rocks are a witness. So too, when you go to the word Azazel, divide it in half. So Laz El. So basically, it's um, you, the way you have to read it is Laz Azal. So Azal is Aramaic for going, and Laz is it's um, it's going to uh, a rough place. So Laz Azal. So basically, just means getting to thirty-three is just a way of saying divide up the word into two. And when you divide up the word into two, it it sort of tells you what it what its meaning is. It's sort of like you know, and uh, there are some words um, that their own the own very own word also is the definition of of what it is. For example, the word "ug," right, or "ugh," right. That that that's a word everyone understands. So in this case, you, if you unpack the word, again, somewhat far-fetched because you have to go to Galilee to do it. It's just saying divide up the word in two. Lazazo just means lazazal. The problem is, is I don't think that for the Ibn Ezra that that's what he meant, because why would it have to be such a big secret? If it was such a big secret, then. Um, you know, dividing up a word is not such a big secret. You could have told everybody. But if you go to the Ramban, the Ramban is the one who sort of opens up that this is a bribe for some all. He's the one who makes it super duper clear that that's what's really going on here. Uh, and he has a medrash to show that that's what the Ibn Ezra was referring to. But he has another way of showing the 33. He basically counts 33 psukim. And when you, when you, when you count out the psukim, you get to the the pasuk of v'leizbechoedes et la seirim that they won't sh- uh, slaughter and you shouldn't slaughter anymore to the seirim one of the seirim to the goats it's these sort of idolatrous uh, customs that people had so therefore says the Ramban that's what he's referring to these people were slaughtering to these seirim they were slaughtering to these things that were false and so what he's really saying is when he's saying the saralazazo He's referring to uh, effectively giving a bribe to the to the Samach Mem. Um, but he doesn't like it. And the reason he doesn't like it, and, and by, like I said, he doesn't say that the Ibn Ezra is based on nothing. He says there's a medrash actually that goes with the with the with you know where where this is coming from. But he doesn't like it. And the reason he doesn't like it is because how, you're, you're effectively saying that even though the Torah is saying you shouldn't be shechting to to these other gods, but you're giving effectively an equivalent of a carbon, even though it's not slaughtered, it's its own way slaughtered. You're doing that for a, you know, f- for a, some sort of uh, archangel of of death, some sort of angel, you know, some sort of um, destroyer. He says that sounds very close to idolatry. Remember, the Ramban is very clear in Parshas Yisrael, on the Pasuk of that you not let have any other gods before me, the Ramban there says that what does other gods mean? And and the Ramban is pretty expansive, right? Including in the list of the other gods for the Ramban, it's not just to have, uh, you know, a getchka of a sun or the moon or, or trees or whatever. No, the Ramban goes even further, says, you may not daven 
to any angel. You're not allowed to daven to any angel. Why not? Because daven to an angel is a violation of the prohibition of right, This comes up all the time by Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in relation to people uh, saying various different tefillahs, uh, you know, like Mechnisei Racham and other things that, that elicit assistance from angels. Is that considered praying or not? It's not for right now. But but the Ramban says, Davin to an angel is 100% not allowed. It's 100% a violation of, of It's a lav. It's a lav from the Saras of Dibris. And, and the reason is because if somebody goes down that route of praying to an intermediary that's an angel, eventually they'll make that angel into into a god. And eventually that will you know, be the be-all, the, the, the be-all and end-all, you know, the, it'll be the end of everything. Because it'll be, you know, effectively opening back idol worship. So the Ramban is very, very vehement against it. And here, he says, how could it be that on Yom Kippur, the holiest of days, we're literally going into, you know, effectively praying to an angel, which is a, a love in the Torah. That's what the Torah is asking us to do, which potentially can open up a whole Pandora's box. Because imagine people think like, you know, maybe Azazel wasn't so, maybe the Samal wasn't so happy with the one goat. You know, maybe he wanted another goat. Maybe maybe five goats would have worked. But what, what would stop them on another day of the year from not wanting to do more? Make Samach Mem happy. Maybe he wasn't happy enough on Yom Kippur. You, you enter into a slippery slope. Why is it only on Yom Kippur that we're going to give him you know, some homage? We give God Karbanis all year long. So, so the, for the Ramban, this is, not, this is not tenable to say that we're giving, uh, we're trying to buy off Samach Mem. That doesn't work. So the Ramban instead, the, the Ramban instead suggests that this is not a bribe for Samal. Tries to creatively reread the you know this medrash that the Ibn Ezra is you know basing himself on, and effectively he wants to argue that it's not a bribe for Samal. Uh, many things in life are very very important. Uh, in, intentionality is 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 vital is key. Sometimes when people could two people can do the same thing, but it has very different meanings. Even if it looks like the actions are the same. But there are, since their attentions are very, very different, it has a totally different impact on what it is that they're doing. And for the Ramban, that's definitely the case over here. For the Ramban, you're not bribing Samo. In other words, you're not trying to make him be nice to you. After all, he's an angel. The Jewish people, they don't exist uh, under the hands of, under the dominion of angels. The Ramban is clear in 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 Devarim, that the whole notion of Tamim Tiyam Hashem Kecha is means that while certainly God has messengers that do a lot around for the other nations of the world, but when it comes to the Jewish people, the God's Hashkacha is direct. One can approach him directly. One, as we say, has to daven to him directly. You can't daven to any intermediary for the reasons that we've enumerated before in La'yelacha And so for the Ramban, to say you're bribing Samal obviously is a non-starter. So then what are you doing with Samal? He doesn't disagree with the matters. He, he, he allows that there's something going on with Samal, but it's not a bribe. What he said is like this. 
And this is the Ramban sort of approach to this wider topic in general, which some of which we covered in Parshat Ramai, some of which we covered a little bit in Parshat The Ramban basically wants to make the argument that, while it's not a bribe for Samal, it's a gift. Hashem says, give a gift to Samuel. And you're honoring Hashem's command by giving a gift to him. Now, what does that mean? So, imagine you have, the Ramban gives a marshal, imagine you have a, a king. He says he's coming, you know, it's like Downton Abbey. He's coming to Downton Abbey uh, to visit. And what happens? The whole, the whole palace is in an uproar, right? Everybody's preparing for the king's visit. And everybody's running around and they're, you know, f- fixing the lawns and making sure all the cutlery is full sets and making sure all the dishes are not chipped and the table is set perfectly and the, everything is polished to the tea and every waiter and waitress knows exactly the butlers, how to curtsy and how to bow and where to stand. And they know how to pour the wine and bring the food. Everybody's learning everything to make sure it's spick and span and perfect in tip-top shape when the king arrives. Finally, the king arrives. And he's going to have this dinner. And he comes to the dinner. And everything is working out perfectly well. And it's very, very nice. But the king, when when he comes to visit, he doesn't come alone. He has an entourage. So the king sits down. He says to the hosts, please, take care of my entourage. My retinue. Take care of them also. So, of course, you know the entourage also gets a seat at the table. Or maybe they have servants' quarters, wherever it is that the, you know, the various different levels of the people that are with the king, they all sit according to their station. But everyone, everyone needs to be fed. The king's not going to just sit there and eat himself and then leave. Says the Ramban, that's basically what's going on here. HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, you're making me a holy Yom Kippur, it's all very nice and well, but give a, give a portion to my, my, my really loyal servant, Samach Mem. And what we're doing is saying, okay, we'll listen to whatever Hashem wants, we're going to give a portion to Samach Mem, his very loyal servant. We're not trying to bribe Samach Mem, we don't want to get anything out of it. Just want to listen to what the king says. The king says, "Give a little honor to my servants. Give them a little food. No problem." So therefore, would never come about that you might think, "Oh, that this Samo has any power." You never dive into him. It's never going to be a situation where, like during the year, things are going badly. You say, "Oh, you know, maybe I should give more goats, you know, down the down the mountain for Samo because Hashem only said it to do it once." So there would never be that kind of a question that you might morph or into viewing Samach Mem as having any power over you, or that, you know, in any way you're uh, beseeching him, or attempting to bribe him, or to seek any any sort of uh, pity, or, or, you know, this is not any sort of supplication. This is in no way supplanting God. This is simply... Obeying God's command, and he said, "Give my entourage some food." In this case, it's Samach Mem. That's effectively the approach of the Ramban, but the Ramban continues, and the Ramban says, at the end, and you could feel at the end of his commentary over here, that 
that he's, you know, a little bit on the defensive about this explanation. Um, <coughs> the Ramban says, at the end of it, he says, look, at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, so the end of all of this, the Ramban says, look, I could talk to you more about this, but but I'm not. And the reason I'm not is because I'm opening myself up to be made fun of by those who follow the Avani, by those who follow Aristotle, by those who believe that the only things in life that are really provable are things that are tactile, things that are measurable, things that are physical. Says the Ramban, all the people that follow the the uh, the Avani, all the people that follow Aristotle, they're going to effectively make fun of me. You know, they're going to effectively be poking at this theory that I've just enumerated, that the reason we are um, putting the Surah Lazazel is not to bribe Azazel, uh, sorry, not to bribe Samuel, but rather to obey God's command. God wants his servants to eat also, and so that's why we're doing it. But he says if you studied the, the study of necromancy, then you'll understand the wisdom of what it is that I have said. And then he uh, concludes here, he says um, who, that uh, Aristotle and his, and his students, the Rishon, the evil people um, who, who refuse to acknowledge anything that they can't see or touch and, and say that that's by definition false. So that's the Ramban uh, his position on what the Sarla Zazel for, and I think it reflects the the two things: one, his attempt to to find a way to be mastic uh, Chazal, but it also um, reflects the the fact that he knew that there would be some discomfort, some discomfort with with this notion and that he would be hearing it from others if he went further down this road. Um, and so, as I mentioned before, and I won't belabor the point now, the, the Ramban is willing many times to accept secular wisdom. Many times he's willing to use secular wisdom in a way that will contradict what might seem to be otherwise what Chazal say or the simple reading of a Pasuk. The most famous example of that is in relation to the the rainbow in Parshas Noach. Um, but that being said, he also very much believes, as we pointed out in Parshas Kisetze, in the veracity and the efficacy of magic. And we are commanded not to engage in these kinds of practices not because they're not real, which would be the position of the Rambam, 
rather because we are on a higher level. This a mazali Yisrael. The Jewish people don't live under the dominion of God's messengers. We live under the direct rule of Hashem Himself, and so therefore we don't need to access any of this. So that is, uh, in short, the the approach of the Ramban to the Sar Lazozo. So I want to wish everybody a Gemar Chasimatayva and a Git Gebench to your. Thank you, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Thank you.